younger managers who've come to me, particularly women of color, who have said, I don't want to fit in in the sense that I don't want to replicate what I see as not healthy. At the same time, I want to be successful. And it's a conundrum for many people because the current work environment doesn't resonate with their own values about everyone having a voice. Hi, I'm Aaron Levy, and I have this crazy vision of a workplace where your manager doesn't suck. Where instead of being the reason you quit your job is actually the reason you stay. Where your manager is your coach, helping you to reach your full potential at work. I founded Raise the Bar, wrote Open, Honest, and Direct, and started this podcast to help companies transform their workplace by creating an environment where both the company and employee succeeds. In this podcast, I get to interview leaders who built high-performing teams and learn from them what it takes to unlock a team's potential. Today, I'm lucky to have Dory Blessoff, the former Chief People Officer at Relativity and currently the Talent Advisor for Relativity. Dory joined Relativity when they had just 200 people and helped the company grow and evolve to where they are today at just over 1,200 employees around the world. Dory is also an adjunct faculty at Northwestern University's School of Education and Social Policy, a role she's been in for over 20 years. Dory is someone who's deeply passionate and incredibly knowledgeable about societal change, about policy, about the world of work, and its role in the development of our people and culture today. I'm so excited to share this conversation we had, and I know you'll all enjoy it. So Dory, a few months back, we had this just amazing conversation about life, work, society, what role that all plays together and how they all interact. And the conversation got me really excited about a lot of things. And it started with you sharing this new class you were creating for Northwestern. Can you Mm -hmm. share a little bit more about the genesis of this class that you're creating and, and what it's about? Sure. And we're already through it. So it's not new anymore, although we're creating as we go, we're iterating as we go. Sure. I I mean, in addition to my full-time roles in various companies and as an independent consultant, I've had a really great opportunity to be adjunct faculty at Northwestern in the School of Education and Social Policy. And I've had the opportunity to teach both at the undergraduate level, a course called Learning Organizations for Complex Environments, and at the graduate level, the master's This is both in the learning and organizational change major and master's degree. In my master's course, I co-instruct with a design professional, and it's called Designing Sustainable Strategic Change. Hmm. And so part of what has been so wonderful for me about being part of an academic community, which cares about learning and cares about evolving, is that I get to revisit and challenge and learn collectively with others what could be of most service to this particular generation. And since I've been there 23, going on 24 years, it's been several generations in a way. And so the the course that I'm having the opportunity to teach now is a practicum course at the undergraduate level. And I have an opportunity each week to meet with students who are in internships most of them are remote, and we meet together. And I introduce different conceptual frameworks and different ideas that come mostly from the learning organization and other more recent books and articles. And we talk and we integrate and they do some, you know, reflection and things like that. So I think what I was sharing with you at the time, because I was steep in the design process, was that I was attempting to do three different things in one course. One was to bring over what I felt could still be very helpful from the learning organization disciplines, the fifth, mainly drawing from Peter Senge's fifth discipline and systems thinking and 
what it means to have shared vision, mental models. Those are some of the disciplines, as well as Margaret Wheatley's text, Leadership in the New Science, which was her effort to bring to lay people some of the amazing paradigm shifting scientific discoveries and understanding now about being in a quantum world. So I wanted to bring over what was relevant about that course into this one in a virtual way. And since I'm an experiential facilitator and teacher and leader, I you know, was challenged to come up with virtual ways to do it. Secondly, I wanted it to be a place where folks that were in the class could sort of sift through and process what was happening in their workplace through maybe some of the lenses that we talked about in class. So I wanted it to be relevant to their work. And third, I wanted to have a dimension to every week's topic that dealt with equity and justice and social change, knowing that some weeks we'd be talking about them as individuals, kind of who they are, what their strengths, what their values are, knowing that some weeks we'd be talking about what systems they're part of and how to navigate those systems, but also how to understand how those systems work and how those systems could be changed. And my hope was that the mix of all three things could be empowering and supportive to this generation of students. So they're amazing in their individual journeys and their uniquenesses. So the main learning edge for me has been with regard to the dimension of equity and justice and what that means for social change. And it's something I'm trying to take very seriously. The call that was quite clear last year for white people to move from attempting to prove how we're not racist to how can I actively be an anti-racist and use my privilege to influence all the institutions that I'm part of to move in that direction. And so that's been the most rewarding and most challenging. And I've had lots of help and lots of partnering with particularly colleagues of color who are willing to enter into this dialogue about how to be most relevant to students of this generation and from different backgrounds as well. And I think the thing that that's most curious to me is how do we create those systemic changes? And, you know, every day I read something new about the inequity and the injustices and just the, the way our institutions and systems have been designed to not be equitable. And, and, and they're broken in so many ways. And this is, that's, that's one of the, the main ways they're so broken. And you're teaching students and, and other people and future leaders on how to think and alter these institutions. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming to even go about it. How do you start to go about questioning and challenging these institutions and systems? You know, I learned something when I was getting my master's in organization development. It was a book Peter Block wrote at the time. It was in the 90s. I think the, I think the title was The Answer to How is Yes. And the idea is that there is no best practices that we could just look up here. This is a species evolving. And so, I mean, I can tell you some of the concepts and ideas that I rely on to to become oriented about this. And I just want to say, this is not a five-step thing. This is, Mm -hmm. we all enter wherever we are, and we have to unlearn and relearn based on a broader context than however we were raised. And we have to remember that our own way of looking at things is both unique and shared. And how do we engage together And I would say I'm definitely on the side that we do not want to go back to normal. I think normal is what got us here. And so how do we engage together to share a vision of what we want to shape and work through how and how together, what do we each need to do separately? All of those things are, it's just really about entering into it with a spirit of 
we're in it together and we're going to have to figure this out together. And, and I need to respect you and hear you. And I need to be aware myself of what I've been unconscious about. <laughs> That's what the whole implicit bias idea is. Like there's so many things, especially if you're in a privileged position or a dominant norm, if you fall within a dominant norm of a culture, then you don't have to think about it because you just assume everything works this way. And if you're not listening carefully and watching and learning from those who are not in the dominant norm, who are telling you it's not this way for everyone, it's not this way for me, then you're going to miss the whole point. So part of it is, you know, appreciating where you fit in the scheme of things. I think what you just said is actually so elemental and so critical to the discussion as a whole. This isn't linear. And it's not like you can just say, hey, let's go on a path and everybody follow the path because everybody's coming at it from different perspectives and different periods. And any change like that, we often, our brains want it to be linear. Our brains want the step by step by step to be, how do I do it? Okay, something's broken. What, how do I fix it? And what you're saying is it's not that simple and change and institutional change like this. And it takes awareness and discussion and conversation and self-awareness and self-discovery and acceptance that everybody is coming from a different point of view and a different place. And it takes commitment. If you're in the situation where you can opt out, you know, there's different social identities that are mostly mapped to areas that in a dominant culture are considered outside the norm. In the U.S., there's dominant norms related to gender identity, sexuality, age, religion, color of skin, nationality, language, body image. So many things are defined as the norm, and those who don't fit are outside the norm and are often harmed in every way from microaggressions to never seeing themselves reflected in leadership roles. I mean, why is it that last year was the first year that crayons had a flesh color that wasn't just beige. It's in everything all the way. Honestly, the harm includes complete erasure of indigenous people in history, complete denial that all lands are indigenous lands. And there are big, large presumptions that one can opt out because you're considered to fit in or be normal. And so you don't have to deal with these things. Vi daily violence, pepper spraying of a nine-year-old black girl. Like, oh, you can just opt out. You can just not watch that. What if that is your niece? What if that is your daughter? What if that is you? Like, there's a big choice here, especially for people who have come on the, and I'm, I'm talking about this in terms of a wheel because there's a very helpful wheel by KP Morgan that shows a lot of these categories. And we are into intersectional and we aren't just one thing and, so there's a lot of different ways that we experience society. And I'm trying to be kind of simplistic here. But in general, the commitment that we need is, especially if we've come from those places that you don't have to engage in what it means to be harmed or exiled or denied rights or stigmatized or even had violence against you. If you come from those places, it takes a commitment and a belief that we are all connected and we are all part of this problem that we have and also part of the solution. And so I am adding the word commitment. I think that the nonlinear thing that you're referring to, and I don't know how much you've gotten into this, Aaron, but as I've basically remotely sat at the feet of so many, particularly black women in history and also currently thought leaders, as well as indigenous elders and Latinx spokespeople, it's like as a white person, I, I considered myself to be pretty 
open-minded and pretty culturally competent and all those things. And I never adequately went deeply enough to understand just how much I didn't know. So as I've remotely meaning, I've immersed myself in podcasts and webinars and reading and just trying to understand more kind of what's going on. I understand that there are ways of understanding things that are actually traceable to white supremacy thinking. And one of them is that everything is going to be logical, orderly, and linear. And that in and of itself is part of the mindset that I'll tell you another one that was really striking when I first learned was perfectionism. And the expectation or the, well, unrealistic expectation that somehow if we aren't perfect, we will fall short, we will we will be punished, we will be left out, we will be judged. And underneath that, in my own personal growth work, I've discovered that a pillar of this is teaching all of us, we are not enough. And, you know, you talk about commitment. I mean, you you have to unlearn a lot of these things, Erin, that have kept us from being able to be different or even envision something different. Yeah. And well, there's a lot to, to like unpack. It's like what you just said is like poetic and also terrifying because some of these not on so many levels, this need for perfectionism is what holds us back as individuals in our own lives on a daily basis and what holds our society back from right a, a greater, more inclusive, more forward way of living. But it like it holds back on this macro and micro level, which is just kind of terrifying that it's so ingrained. And I had never thought of it until you just shared that. As humanity on the earth right now, there's a lot to appreciate about the macro level of how we have acted. And particularly in this case, I do mean those with power, but also those of us who've gone along with it or had no choice but to go along with it, have acted in climate, you know, in the relationship to our planet that have macro impact and micro impact. And same when we act to change it, there's some macro things that have to be done. There's some micro things that have to be done. And, you know, it's helpful to realize that whenever we're changing anything, it's at different levels. So when we engage in actually understanding systems, there's a lovely model, six conditions for systems change that's written by systems thinkers like Peter Senge and others. And the description of systems change is that change occurs at the implicit level, which is what we call mental models, or we could call unconscious bias. It's the assumptions we make about how the world works or how it should work. And sustainable long-term change occurs when those mental models are changed. And that's where education comes in. That's where deep conversation comes in. That's where reflection comes in. That's where learning and reading and hearing from those who have not been considered the ones to follow in the dominant norm, but the voices that have that need to be heard to be included. That's where that comes in. Then there's a semi-explicit level, which is relationships and power dynamics. And they call it semi-explicit because you know they're there. You kind of observe the impact of them. They aren't necessarily written on the org charts or, you know, but everybody kind of knows the power dynamics, you know, who's in, who's out, who can, who can decide, who can't decide, and then relationships. And then the top level, which is the most visible or explicit level, is practices, policies, and resource flows or investments. And, and that's kind of where the behavioral things, the decisions are made. And, you know, all of these are really important in systems change. And as long as we continue to, to allow our mindset to be expanded and to understand how we will not get there. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the kind of icons in civil rights 
and especially grassroots organizing. And she's quoted a lot now. One of her most famous sayings is nobody's free until everybody's free. And that is one of the foundational pillars of systems thinking is the interdependence that we all have. And so part of the nonlinear thing is everything is needed in, there's a lot needed in different realms, which are all at different paces, you know, things like that. And part of it is the interdependence and understanding complexity. And all of these things we're talking about are very complex. Well, it can be very overwhelming to think about, like, there's so much to do. There's so much broken. There's so much that needs fixing. And I think what you just shared when you said, wherever you are pulled, you are needed there is kind of like the freedom allowance, at least personally to think, okay, like I, I can't fix everything. I'm not going to, but I'm needed in a certain place and I'm going to go dive deep into that place and, and go to work there. Yeah. And stay committed to continuing to unlearn and, and learn. Can I speak to the overwhelming thing a bit? Yeah, please. So I thought a lot about that, especially during 2020, because it was such a confluence, wasn't it? Of so many complexities were so surfaced at the same time. And I don't think I need to name them, but one was the pandemic itself, which totally shows our interdependence on even how we help each other from getting sick and how others help us from getting sick. Like how does disease spread? It's a beautiful analogy for so many things. It hasn't been a beautiful experience, but it has shown us that interdependence and how we cooperate to help everyone. Because if everyone is not safe, then no one is safe. It's, it's just an amazing metaphor. And so the racial justice reckoning, the racial justice protests and the visibility of Black Lives Matter and what that means and all of the calls for what does it mean to defund police? What does that even mean? What is the role of police in society, policing in society? What about the good people? What about the people who have prejudice that comes out in physical violence? All of these are very complex questions. And the question of race has been on the forefront of the United States in the sense of its history for 400 years. And another quote I loved of Fannie Lou Hamer was she said, hopefully, in the 401st year, the U.S. will see that Black people all along have had faith, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but have had faith in the vision, a faith that, frankly, you don't deserve our faith for how we've been treated, but, but we've seen the worst, and yet for somehow we're clinging to the best. And if people could see that we're not the problem, that we're part of the solution, that we believe in democracy, and we've been fighting for democracy since day one, like that's a really powerful understanding, right? So last year we saw more climate disasters than we've seen before. And we've heard that these things are going to continue. There will be more hurricanes. There will be weather shifting. So snow will be going south. Warmth will be going north. And fires and mudslides and flooding and droughts and tornadoes. And these are all the, the earth out of balance and shifting in a way that we can't control. We can influence, but we can't control. So another complexity that brings up our interdependence. And then I would add economic stability. You know, U.S. politics is clearly one that we can talk about in the U.S. And I would add that the economic stability and why is there a still growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots and evident even during the stimulus checks. Like, what the heck happened? So yes, any, any one of those could feel overwhelming if you try to take a macro view. 
here's how it makes sense to me. And just on a personal note, I am an Aquarian and I just had my birthday. And also I just turned 68. There's a developmental stage at my age called life review. So this is how I stay oriented right now. I think that on a meta level, this is one of those points in our civilization as a a whole civilization as a species where we are shifting from one mode of existence to another. I heard a futurist the other day, Edie Weiner, speak of this as a tectonic shift. And her point was that every single discipline and field is having to go back to the beginning and ask, is this true? Is what we've been exhibiting and basing our work on true from science to architecture to education to medicine? So tectonic shift is one way of looking at it. I thought that was a helpful. The other one I think I might've shared with you is an older book by Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave. And his point that helped Mm -hmm. me so much was that when we are shifting from, we could say right now from industrialism to uh, information age, digital age, fourth industrial revolution. So there's different names, but we're shifting away from industry as the primary value creation to information, service, digital delivery of things, just a whole different decentralization, gigification, (laughs) remote work, like all these things are shifting. And that every time there's a shift like this, the institutions that were created for the former era begin to crumble or demonstrate fundamental weakness. And it's necessary in those periods to be very clear what it is we want to build for, because there's a combination, and this is true right now, I think you'll agree, with dismantling, a deconstruction, a dissolving of institutions that might have been considered forever, you know, maybe 50, 75 years ago, are now actually on the table for, is this true? Is this institution what we thought it was? And and there's a lot of things in that category. But the other thing that's happening, that's the part that I just want to remind us all is there is an emergence of new and there is a resurgence of what has not been considered acceptable or true because of the dominant norm, keeping it out. So indigenous wisdom, knowledge, how to care for the land, you know, traditional African understanding of it takes a village. So there's this emergence and I would say resurgence of, of old and treasured and, and beautiful. And that is happening at the same time. So the overwhelm that we often feel, I think, is because it's all happening at the same time. And it feels so chaotic and scattered. It almost so that feels like me. as you're as you're sharing that, like it's necessary for these things to happen together, right? To create the perspectives and help us shift our perspectives and think differently. The tectonic shift is is necessary. It can't just be one thing. It's almost like those all are, are necessary components to this emergence. I think that if we make a significant shift, which I hope we do, if we do that, it does require both. We have to be free to experiment. One of the metaphors that probably goes in the category of when I need to ground myself again, or when I need to get re-inspired, if I do feel overwhelmed, or if I begin to feel like I'm despairing because of how much needs to change. But I am basically an optimistic person. And I really appreciate that you shared the book Humankind with me, because I love to know there's empirical evidence that we are really good, and we can be our best in difficult situations. And that I think is a really wonderful and inspiring thought. 
And the, the story I wanted to tell is about my trips during the summer when my family would drive to Texas, which is where my parents were from. And I, I continued this when I had my kids. So we would travel in the summer to visit relatives. And one on one trip back, we stopped and my uncle gave me a little piece of a plant with a butterfly chrysalis on it. And he said, here, take this home that you, you and the kids can watch the butterfly hatch. So he put it in a jar. And I think actually it was not a chrysalis yet. It was still a caterpillar. It was a monarch caterpillar. And the caterpillar ate all the leaves in one day. So I kept putting leaves in there and the caterpillar wouldn't eat it. Come to find out caterpillars only eat milkweed, which I did not know at the time. And so time goes on, it forms this gorgeous green chrysalis. And then one day the chrysalis turns black and I think I've killed it. And I tell the kids, I'm not sure what's happening, but we take the jar outside. And the next day they come to me excitedly and say that the butterfly is hatching. Well, it turns out that it, it turns black because the shell of the chrysalis is dissolving, is dying. And so that it, so that it can be malleable enough so that the butterfly can emerge. And so that's a great metaphor too, for what our time with the era we are in. But I learned later the most remarkable thing about this is that as the butterfly struggles to emerge from the now decaying chrysalis, there is a liquid that is released into its wings. And as it struggles, the liquid hardens. And that's what gives the butterfly the strength to fly. That's why I think it's so important to stay committed because we are going to go through a lot of phases of things drying out or becoming weaker. And if we identify with those things, we'll think something horrible is happening. In fact, it is time to struggle to find something new and to emerge even stronger. And that's what I feel we are all called to do right now. Like it, it just reminds me of the things that I talk about. It's like the moments where you had your greatest amount of growth the moments preceding that growth were painful and a struggle and arduous. And, and that's, that's such a great story for it. What I'd love to know is, so you have this amazing, broad worldview, and we're talking about like societal and cultural and evolutionary changes almost in us. And I'm wondering, tell me a little bit about why you chose to, because it must have been some sort of active choice to like go down two different paths at the same time, which is like go into education and social policy. And that makes sense, right? That, that aligns perfectly with everything you've shared before. And also take over, you know, several years back as a chief people officer at a young technology company and, and as a talent advisor, how does that fill into this journey that you've been on? I don't see it that separate. As far as my journey, it's totally logical. One reason I, I consulted at Relativity, which was then Kekira, for two years from 2011 to 2013. And the founder and CEO at that time, Andrew Sage, invited me to join the executive team. And he said, I need your help with, you know, we want to keep being the best product that our clients can rely on that's collecting data and giving them what they need to, to prepare for their litigation or investigation. We need to have a place that people love to come to work. And we need to give back in the communities to level the playing field, particularly in the underserved communities, underrepresented communities where technology is not a given. And that idea behind having a business and growing a business made a lot of sense to me and was something I wanted to be part of. And if I can give back and influence an organization as it grows, that would feel very fulfilling and it would feel 
kind of like a good next lap on my career track. And so I did agree to be chief people officer in 2013. And the social impact component of relativity, which has continued very strongly under the new CEO, Mike Gamson, is one of the main reasons that I feel so good about being in that workplace community. So we grew from a little under 200 to a little under 1,200 during the time that I was chief people officer. And I had the opportunity to be part of a rapidly growing organization, solving a lot of different things. The mission that we have is to organize data, help our customers organize data, discover the truth and act on it. And so we inherently participate in providing information and more transparency to increase the chances that justice will be done. And so there's a link there. You know, there's two new programs that have started up in the last year that enhance the investment that we did for local schools in technology and closing some of the technology gap. One was called Fellows, Relativity Fellows, which is inviting people to come and learn our product, people who are motivated and talented and just haven't had the opportunity to come. They apply and they become part of our program. We just graduated our first cohort, and these folks are brilliant and motivated and all the things that will add a lot to any environment. But we also are adding something called Justice for Change, which is going to give organizations that are working for racial justice a chance to benefit from our software to really help them build a case that will help further racial justice. And so the reason for for my commitment to relativity is partly because of the commitment to social impact, and also because I felt that the core values were real and something that everyone cared about continuing, even as we evolved our culture. And I do believe culture evolves. I mean, culture itself is a social construct. And so it means we we can keep growing and, and changing. And whether that's because more people are coming in that bring different perspectives or you know, we went from Chicago to global with four offices outside of the United States. So like all of these reasons allow the living organism to evolve and yet keep the core values solid. And so that was something I really felt I could help with. And I was thrilled at what happened with the number of people that cared about a workplace community that in the last five, six years had, has also made part of its conscious effort to be inclusive and equitable and yield a sense of belonging for everybody who's there. And it also gave me the opportunity to both learn and teach because, by the way, when you're a teacher, you, if you're doing it right, you're learning also a lot. And you learn fr- from the people in the class and the different generations have different perspectives. And so we're all kind of learning as we go. I'm proud of Relativity for figuring out ways to utilize people of my age group because so many horror stories exist about age discrimination and not being valued at our age. And you know, we do have a lot to offer and we do have a lot to learn. I think the, the tie-in that maybe you did subconsciously was you said you related to yourself as a teacher at Relativity. And, you know, as you hear that, it's something that goes back to like old institutional ways of working, which is you're a task manager, you do what I say because you're supposed to do it, which is very different and divergent from teaching and empowering and coaching. And I mean, that's, I think, why we've resonated so many times in, in our connections is that's the future of work that I see a future where people are coaches, people are teachers, people are supporting their teams to explore, to learn, to grow, to evolve. And those teachers might not necessarily have all the answers. They shouldn't have all the answers. And and I just, even like your description talks to the future of work in the way I see it. It's that emergence. It, 
it's being a part of it and being a creator in that at a company where you're you're doing that in the way in which your company gives back. You're doing that in the way in which you teach others and, and pay it forward. And you're doing that in the way in which your company creates, literally the product it creates, creates an emergence. So it, I see that on so many different levels and it just, it's so neat the way you tie it all together in your mind. Well, thank you. It doesn't feel quite that neat in my life, but I think <laughs> I definitely feel connected with all the things that I am committed to. They all feel very kind of core to me. And I wanted to share, because we've been using the word emergence a number of times, I have found this wonderful book by Adrienne Marie Brown called Emergent Strategy. And she she herself is so multifaceted. She identifies as queer, Black, millennial. She's a doula. She is a community organizer. She loves Octavia Butler, Afrofuturism and science fiction and fantasy. And she's, she's really so, so multifaceted is the best way I can explain it. The book Emergent Strategy has this really lovely, so many lovely ideas, but the one that has really helped me a lot. And I'd like to mention here because of this whole thing about kind of where do we fit and where does this fit? What, what, what about what I want to do? She calls what we need to do intentional adaptation. And I have found such orientation in what in what she talks about, because basically what she's saying, you know, when you think of adaptation, well, you can adapt, but you can also adapt to something that's unhealthy or toxic. And that's not what we're after here. Yeah. And, you know, younger managers who come to me, particularly women of color, who have said, I don't want to fit in, in the sense that I don't want to replicate what I see as not healthy at the same time, I want to be successful. And this is a big conundrum. And it, and it is. And it's a conundrum for many people because the current work environment doesn't resonate with their own values about everyone having a voice, about clarity and transparency, you know, things like that. So this idea is that you carry your purpose with you as you adapt. We're not just being reactive and we're not just submitting to something that we might perceive to be harmful or less healthy. What we're doing is we're carrying our values and our vision of what we think, what we care to create and our purpose, you know, what we're doing here on this earth. We carry that with us as we engage with systems, with whatever system we're part of, and we have our voice, we find our, our voice, and we hopefully help to shape that system. If it's something that doesn't feel open to that, that might not be the right place for us to be working. But if we find openness, we can actually help shape something. And so that's a very empowering concept. And I, and I think it's helpful in finding one's way right now and staying oriented and finding one's way. I think it hits on this idea of being clear and, and diving into your purpose. And you know, the, the fun thing about the work that I get to do is do this with thousands of leaders and you know they don't know it's coming but we're asking them for what their purpose is because that's the, usually the driver and the place to come from and to the t every person has a purpose that's external even if they say it's internal it's to help it's to serve it's to bring truth it's to empower others it's to unlock potential and so it's funny that this conversation comes full circle and for me back to this idea of purpose and it's amazing <laughs> story this has been like so much fun. This conversation evolved even more than I could have ever imagined. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for you being here and not just here on this podcast, but on this earth to kind of take that broad perspective and to share it and to share it with me, to share it with the audience, to share it with the, the people that you touch. And so just a thank you. Thank you, Aaron. It was really sweet to be able to talk with you today. 
Open, Honest, and Direct is produced by Raise the Bar, where we help companies and organizations level up their leadership by empowering their managers with the tools, skills, and training to be better leaders of people. You can get in touch with us at raisebar.co. Thank you for listening and go out and put your learning into practice.